Soda Talk, and today we're uh, running the Speedcast, something we haven't done before, yeah. and we're going to cover four current events that we think uh, you know listeners might find a little worth learning about. Yeah. So um, I guess we're going to start with Max. We had um, four topics to discuss, and we're going to do a little bit of a Q and A, as mm-hmm. if um, you know things I would want to know as a listener, and we see the answers. I mean, we've each done two topics that we've done a little research on. Yeah. And we're just going to see how that goes. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I guess the first one we're talking about today is uh, kind of in the tech world. Right. Uh, we're talking about Clearview AI. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been in recent news um, all over just because it's a privacy thing. Yeah. And, I mean, all over podcasts, all over the New York Times, CNN, you know, mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. So for for those of us who don't know what Clearview AI is, what is that? Yeah, so... Clearview AI is essentially this like very secretive company in a way that essentially what they do is take billions of photos from all over the internet and they use that for like this facial recognition program um, that's basically being used by law enforcement at this point. Um, and essentially what they do is this facial recognition software allows them to, you know, take Whatever type of photo they have, maybe it's from surveillance photos, uh, from like say a robbery, and it can match it to these billions of photos and really try to do what a lot of previous facial recognition softwares couldn't, and you know solve crimes and find people who you know are on the loose that they don't mm-hmm. have in the typical databases of the law how, enforcement. How big are those law, law? Like how big is this Clearview AI um, database compared to let's say like the FBI? So. Compared to the FBI, the thing about like a place like the FBI is really their data, their database is at least in terms of like whose photos do they have on file. They don't have like you or me because you know we haven't had any run-ins with the law to my knowledge. Um, and so, but with what Clearview does is they take them from Facebook, um, Instagram, really anywhere that your photo is on the internet. I mean they've scrubbed or scraped about. It's over three billion photos, and essentially compared the, comparing that to like the FBI, I mean the FBI only has it for people who have a record with them, and typically that's only uh, the the unique part is the FBI. It's straight on like mugshot type photos, whereas Clearview AI, they've got photos from your profile, from above you, below you, kind of whatever photos that they can gather from that person. Um, so it's not even just that they have a photo of you; it's that they have it from different angles that can help pair up with, you know, another photo that they have of you. So who started this? So, yeah, so the founder of it, he goes, at least on LinkedIn, he goes by an alias, uh, John Good, and that is actually their only listed employee on LinkedIn. So if you were to look up Clearview AI, they would only have one employee being him, and that's still a made-up name for the real founder of this company, uh, Wonton Tat. Now, he's from Australia. He's a writ well, he grew up in Australia. He's, um, I forget what his actual like nationality is, but he grew up in Australia and then came to America, basically, and had a series of app developments that kind of fizzled out. He did like this Trump hair app that, you know, he made. And then basically from the Trump hair app that he made, he jumped to this giant Clearview AI facial recognition. So that's Wonton Tat is who founded this okay so why should we 
um, being members of the public be worried about it? Who's who's using it right now? Yeah, so it's unique and it's scary. So right now, you know, it kind of makes sense, and there's a lot of mixed opinions on it. So right now, it's not even in a fully fledged use, but it's more law enforcement's will give it like these trial runs, and it's been all around the country that they've been using these. Um, so far, it's only been in the use of like police departments and like the FBI. Um, and they use that to track down criminals who they don't have on record. And it actually has led to a lot of um, arrests and, you know, a lot of situations where they can find, you know, where this person lives and where they are. And so it's unique in that aspect and has been helpful. Um, but in terms of, like, why we should be scared is there's the potential that this ends up getting in the wrong hands. And Wonton Tat was actually asked about, you know, does this go commercial? He said he's reluctant in a way to getting it to that point because he said, you know, um, I mean, that's actually my next question is how does this affect our daily lives now? And is this going to be accessible to the public anytime soon? Yeah. And so in terms of at least Wonton Tat's creation of Clearview AI, no, he's reluctant to open that to the public because he's, he recognizes that there are people who have bad intentions and who would misuse it. I mean, that's kind of the double-edged sword that comes with technology is there's people who do good with it and there's people who do it, do bad with it. it something but, I've yeah. heard, at least from investors, mm-hmm. um, is they're getting a little frustrated. Is like, I mean, how they, as the investors, I mean, they poured all their money into this, but they want to see it go public more. Yeah. So, I mean, he has to deal with the public's perception is they don't want it to go public, but the, also the investors are like, hey, we need this in yeah. the public because yeah. it's our money. Yeah, and so he's... We'll see kind of how he goes about developing this software and application. But what he thinks or what, you know, there's speculation is now that the, you know, seal has been broken on this facial recognition software through this application, it's pretty likely that someone can just come along, make a knockoff version of that, mm-hmm. doing the same thing and just put it public. And now you've done that. And yeah. we'll we'll have to see kind of what lawmakers do in terms of this because we've never had something like this and you know in facebook's policies it says that you know an application a software like this can't take facebook's photos and do that but basically what this clearview ai has done is just going to do it anyway. bypassed it right. so we'll have to see what the ramifications are moving forward because it is so new so we could see it end up getting toned back and a lot of photos have to get taken away or you know there's just knockoff after knockoff and this becomes public and it's scary because that means if someone gets a photo of you they can find any photo of you on the internet essentially find out a lot about you in terms right. of where you are location so a lot about we're, you. we're looking at is something inevitable unless the government uh intervenes yeah i think if there isn't instant action towards you know remedying the situation yeah we are looking at that okay. but it, it will definitely have to see kind of how this develops within lawmakers all right, yeah. so that I mean that wraps our little uh, clip of Clearview AI. Yeah. I think we're going to move on to something new, um, not specifically SpaceX, but uh, private investing in space travel. Yeah, it's um, something that we were both looking at recently, and so it's actually picking up a lot with this whole private investment in space travel. And so, in terms of the space exploration and that whole sector, why is private investment so powerful in that sense? Well, private investors have the opportunity that NASA really hasn't had um, since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Is well, NASA actually screwed themselves in the long run. Yeah, they came up with uh, these private contracts that said, "Hey, 
you make this for us and no matter how much it costs we are going to give you like 20 percent profit off of that so i yeah. mean these companies that were making things for nasa they were allowed to spend as much money as possible and even if they spent more money than it actually required they're just getting double profits then you know yeah so so it really wasn't fair to nasa or i mean space travel in general and another thing that happened was nasa because they had these private contracts they couldn't make mistakes because you know you order someone to make a spacesuit and maybe that's not the spacesuit you want you have to be sure of it because mm -hmm. you spend all that money on a spacesuit it's super expensive especially with the whole profit thing mm -hmm. and you know they can't go back on what they already did so i mean it took a long time for them to make decisions and processes that allowed them to go through with such things yeah and then another thing i mean that's so powerful about it is now that they don't have these private contracts hindering, you know, their success and, you know, they're able to make mistakes and quick turnarounds to try something different, you know, mm -hmm. they can experiment with what they're doing is there's in a massive amount of competition. So much yeah. like it was in the 1960s where it was Russia versus the U.S. and whoever really wanted to get to space first, we're seeing, you know, a large amount of rivals that, you know, SpaceX, which is Tesla, Boeing, um, Space Adventures, which I don't know who they are. Blue Origin, which is Amazon, and then Virgin Galactic. I mean, there's yeah. so many companies that are competing. And, you know, with competition drives innovation. Yeah, 100%. And so I guess kind of piggybacking off of that, what you were just talking about in terms of all these different companies jumping in on this private investment, um, you know, those are for the most part all these, like, U.S.-based companies. Um, and also talking about NASA. Uh, but how does the U.S., you know, we we looked at the U.S. so far. How do they compare to the world currently in terms of space exploration? I know, um, I think China has maybe done some stuff, but, you know, maybe give us a look into the rest of the world in that sense. Right. So, I mean, the U.S. is kind of pioneering the uh, whole international private investing thing. Okay. But, I mean, as far as NASA is concerned, NASA is leagues behind China and Russia. Really? really. Yeah. So it's kind of embarrassing um, for America in terms of space travel is NASA's been hitching rides off of the Russians for a while. So they, really? I mean, they basically had to beg Russia to give them rides up to the space station <laughs> because the way NASA built their thing or their spaceships is they were extremely costly. I mean, they only have a small amount of budget and they can't, they couldn't develop a new spacecraft that would um, be applicable with today's technology. Yeah. So Russia did it. Yeah. And, Ours were too outdated to use. So then, I mean, basically we were relying on Russia the entire time, which was honestly, I mean, kind of our enemy in the 1960s. It's a little bit of a turnaround. Um, so we're doing a little ride sharing with, yeah. with, with Russia. Yeah, so it's kind of, I mean, embarrassing at Carpool. least for NASA. But, I mean, it's the, really the only option they had uh, until they were able to make a new spaceship. But, I mean, now that private investing has really taken a toll on the whole industry, um, some really amazing things have come out of it. Um, SpaceX, which is Tesla's version um, mm -hmm. of the private, is, they came out with uh, the Starship landing system, which is yeah. a fully reusable, um, fully reusable uh, spaceship that can land on its own, go back up, land yeah. again, and that makes it you know super cost, uh, efficient, cost efficient to do that, and I mean better on the environment. Yeah, I was gonna say from an environment standpoint, it's right. got to be a lot better for. A lot of reasons right and then for i mean nasa to throw junk in space i mean there's already a massive amount of junk just like yeah orbiting the earth not just in the earth like you know where we live 
Um, it's just super environmentally conscious as well. And then increased competition with that. Boeing made the Starliner, which instead of you know landing like a normal uh, plane would, mm-hmm. um, they use a bounce system, and it's really? also fully reusable. It's much like an airbag. Oh. So it lands and it hits the ground, and these airbags pop out, and then it just like kind of like lets go of the air. Wow, it's, that's interesting. It's super interesting. Yeah. Um, so I guess so. There's all these private investment companies that are doing a lot in. They're kind of keeping the U.S. afloat, I would say, in the whole space race. Uh, the whole space race. So where does this leave NASA? Like, are they? close to being done or like how can they stay relevant if that's even possible for them right so i mean you would think that with all this private investment that um you know the nasa would take kind of a backward step Mm -hmm. or you know fizzle out but i mean with trump's announcement of you know the united states uh galactic Mm -hmm. whatever it is yeah but i mean obviously nasa is still gonna be a part of Mm -hmm. that as well but i mean nasa is not taking this as a bad thing i think they see the end goal here is to allow humans to go up to space to go to mars eventually yeah i mean elon musk owns spacex is his goal at the end of life is to live on mars yeah so i mean they're seeing the bigger picture here and instead of not engaging with these i mean they're working with and they're promoting these private companies to give them the tools they need and, um, you know, the facilities and stuff like that. So I think NASA's not going anywhere anytime soon. And I think it's really, with all this competition, only going up from here. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's exciting to kind of see how technology is evolving. And it is unique that NASA's kind of, even though they're ta- they've taken this backseat role, they're now kind of like playing that supportive role it's almost like a parent you know mm-hmm. taking the supportive role of their child you know these uprising these rising companies that are now kind of at the forefront of technology in a sense right no totally yeah i think we're going to switch now a little bit more to something that's happening on this earth today yeah and it's going to be happening for a while unless we see um some vaccines roll out which yeah. uh they did discover really um we're talking about the coronavirus that is is a lab in California discovered... I think I did see something yeah, about that. They discovered a vaccine um, to combat it, and it took them three hours. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I remember. It took them three hours. I saw a meme about it, and I didn't know if like the meme was exaggerating or what it was yeah, about. But so a little really... bit of juxtaposition is they're not going to get the vaccines out until summer. Yeah. I, oh, I, I don't... maybe you have to like mask produce them or maybe uh, they haven't tested it on humans yet so i think oh. it has to go through a bunch of trials and stuff probably, like that yeah, so probably... i mean they discovered it really fast but it doesn't but look like it's uh got like four months till yeah, actual yeah which four months is a long time right kind of getting into this four months is a long time in the sense of how fast the coronavirus spreads so if, you know it's only been i don't know it's probably been, been a couple months that it's really been half, like yeah. really popular and kind of this craze around the world so what would what's the current state of it like today? Right. Pretty so much? when we when we did this a uh, couple it. weeks ago, <laughs> yeah. we uh, did an episode on the coronavirus, and it was about seven thousand cases. Yeah. Right now, a couple weeks later, it's at seventy five thousand, and it's growing. Yeah. Um, deaths have risen to two thousand plus, and again, those now, keep growing. Before you go on with the stats, two thousand plus—that's a lot. You had talked about in the first one. I don't know if you remember the the stats with like the 
was it the MERS outbreak? Yeah, and the SARS? so there's different SARS uh, outbreaks, and the coronavirus is one of those. Death-wise, um, there's is been this... three. Yeah, this is the highest really? deaths okay, and so highest it's... cases. It's the biggest epidemic we've seen in terms. Before we of were saying it was like less. I guess from like a percentage standpoint, right. less deadly, yeah. but overall numbers. Yeah, it's, it's well absolutely over. shattered everything. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the U.S. here, I think 15 cases um, are on the mainland, but uh, a little bit from the cruise ships that are being released where the coronavirus infested, you know, the entire ship, 14 people are being brought brought back, which is, you know, wor- worrisome for many of us yeah. who don't want to get sick. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a small percentage of deaths, but you don't want to take the chance. Yeah, that cruise ship case was kind of really weird to watch because it was basically... You've got like people who have the coronavirus, and they're just stranded. So you've got people who are on the ship with the coronavirus, people who are on the ship without it, and they're all just like confined together. And they were there for a while. I don't know how long it was, but a couple it's, weeks. It was a couple weeks, yeah. And you know now all these people who are just like sitting in this like coronavirus like seclusion yeah. zone. What's well, unfortunate for I mean. So the cruises, one of the cruises went out for like 14 days, and then yeah. it just harbored because of the whole coronavirus mm-hmm. thing. It's unfortunate for the workers um, they're talking about is that they're not getting prioritized like, um, you know, American citizens or Australian yeah. citizens is they have to work and serve these people who have the coronavirus, and many of them are getting sick. Yeah, so. that's not even, I feel like that's something that gets brushed over because, you know, I think for the most part, a lot of people are worried about like, okay, are, what what's going on with the passengers? Are they getting to go back to where they're coming from? But it's like... Yeah, there's all these workers who are probably worried about all the same things the passengers are, but they're not on the cruise ship to be on the cruise ship. They're on there working every day trying to keep everything in order. So that is definitely something that gets brushed over. Yeah, and so there was this whole cruise ship situation that went down, but I guess keeping in light of the whole travel situation, you know, these people are on these cruise ships, what about other travels such as, like, through airplanes or you know, other ships, just travel in general, how has this affected that globally? Yeah, well, I mean, first to talk about the cruise ships, we already touched on this, but, um, you know, the sick passengers are coming back to the U.S. and other countries as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> what's a little bit weird is these passengers that are heading back to the U.S., they were put on planes, right? Yeah. And these planes, they were tested, right, in Japan, they didn't get the results back before they put them on the plane. So anyone who was suspected of being sick was put on the same plane as everyone who wasn't sick, and they were just separated by a plastic barrier. Ah, uh, So a little bit uh, unprofessional in my yeah, mind. It's, yeah, not the most, like, health. Right. Like, like, at least wait for the results to get back, you yeah, know? It can't take that long. Maybe uh, an right. extra day, maybe. Right, and, I mean, I don't know. put them in quarantine once they go back to the U.S., you know? So, I mean, it kind of sucks for anyone who wasn't affected and was put on that plane because now they're especially under watch because you're on yeah. the same plane as everyone who's sick. Um, so <laughs> it's a little bit unfortunate there. But, I mean, in terms of quarantine, like military checkpoints, I mean, they're super important to, I mean, hold these passengers, hold these people who are sick and uh, get the testing done. So, I mean, passengers, uh, anyone coming to the U.S. are usually held at military uh, checkpoints to just make sure that they're clear and healthy. Um, and not exhibiting symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of like how it's affecting globally, uh, like different events, uh, something interesting is the Tokyo Marathon, which is a huge marathon. I really, mean, yeah. runners from all around the world come to it. 
and they usually host around 37,500 runners. Insane, right? And um, they've kind of tightened their security in a sense. There's only going to be 200 runners this year. 200. Two- and it's only so professional that- runners. Okay. Okay. So I guess that makes sense, but like that they're all professional. But I, yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how that like number gets picked. Like we're going to go from 37,000 to 200. Well, I think they still want the event to go yeah. on, but they don't see the the risk outweighing yeah. itself. Yeah. Um, Much more elite race this yeah, year. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> elitist race. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, it's affecting travel in all these different ways and, you know, in the cruise ships, the planes, Tokyo, you know, all these different things. From an economic standpoint, what is this doing to China's economy? Because it's got to be, if it hasn't taken a toll yet, it seems like it could have some future effects. Right. And when we say China's economy, let's use that loosely because China's economy really (laughs) is at the center of the world. Yeah. I mean, they do everything for the world. You know what I mean? Like their economy is like the building blocks for everything. So if they go down, everyone's going down with them. For sure. Um, So China's actually, you know, like completely on lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cities are completely blocked off. Trade routes um, are blocked off. And then the whole supply chain has gone array, right? For um, sure. Just for an example, there's no toilet paper. In China? Yeah. So, so pe- what are they? I don't know. Um, someone, <laughs> there was a story that a delivery truck driver, and some things are still going on, mm-hmm. right? Um, a delivery truck driver who was delivering toilet paper got robbed. And all his toilet paper was stolen. <laughs> and they didn't take anything off him, just the just, toilet paper. Yeah. Because apparently that is in... That's how, like... Not much of it left. In dire needs they are. Wow. Right, yeah. That is so insane. It, and it's honestly because, it, you know, no one's allowed in and out of the city of mm-hmm. Wuhan. Or, I mean, anywhere that's kind of affected. And, you know, plants are being shut down. Um, you know, different supply chains are being affected in certain ways. And, I mean, companies are trying to get back to work, but... Mm-hmm. When you try to get back to work and operate these factories, you're operating them with little to no amount of people. Because yeah. first, you don't want to come back and get sick. Second of all, probably they're all people. sick. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. there's probably so many employees and workers who are already affected and are now in no condition to be working. Mm-hmm. So even if you were still running, you know, whatever factory or whatever company, yeah. your production levels are taking a huge toll and probably in some cases, not even able to actually, like, function mm-hmm. where it's actually worth Which it leads to me be open. to my next point is we might see a recession here coming um, yeah, for China. The right. recession in general. You know? Um, you know, and it's obviously going to affect the world's economy and how different countries such as the U.S. or places in Europe are affected and can cooperate with what's happening is really going to be, you know, the test of time is whether... You know, all these plants get shut down and China does stay out of work where we start creating our own supplies, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think America will do fine. But for some of these countries that rely heavily on China, it's going to, you know, definitely affect their economies. And we might see a little bit of a global shift depending on how long this, um, you know, whole blockade lasts. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something to, you know, keep keep a open eye to and kind of just keep right. checking out as it progresses because China's historically made things so cheap yeah so I wonder if we're gonna see the prices start going up for things yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see in the next coming months for sure mm-hmm. kind of how that affects the world 
So talking globally. Yeah, global, um, global effects on the world. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about, I mean, this is in the news every week, yeah. right? But about climate change, and more specifically, you had something to touch on rich people. Yeah, it's there's a unique, I came across an article, and then I kind of did a little research beyond that. Because, um, I mean, climate change, it's always popular, like you said, but there's kind of this always... Uh, talk around you know what can the wealthy do these famous people that talk about climate change what's really being done right and climate change i mean is a topic that's been hotly debated in the last 10 or so even 20 years yeah um but we're really coming to fruition with, with what the effects are now i mean what do you say what do you mean by saying rich people can save us from climate change or how is it possible that a select few the top one percent uh can conquer that climate change yeah and so i guess when you say rich people it depends on what your source is. Um, How you some, define them. Yeah, so de- depending on the, what the definition is. In the case of this, there's kind of two definitions that I was referring to when I was, l- that I'm re- going to refer to. Um, one is the wealthiest 1%, and then the other is just people who have, you know, a net worth of like over a million dollars, excluding like, uh, one article was talking about net worth of over a million dollars, excluding their home value. Um, right. So those, I mean, at that point, it's essentially income mainly that's mm-hmm. getting you to mm-hmm. a over a million dollar value. Um, and basically, uh, the ways that these rich people can actually save the environment and save climate change is because they have such influence and such copious amounts of money, whether it's spending their money more wisely, uh, you know, maybe it's getting solar panels on their roof or using electric vehicles or the the richer people in the world tend to be the ones that travel the most as well and that's where a lot of their carbon footprint comes into play um most of their carbon footprint is actually from travel using private jets or just flying all the time mm-hmm. so i mean that leads me to my next question is what is the average carbon footprint of a normal person like you or me and how does that compare to someone who is what you would define as rich however you are defining yeah that? so Compared to, so in terms of the wealthiest 1%, their carbon footprint, now these are estimations because you can't mm-hmm, guarantee right. that everyone, but from the article I was reading, it actually turns out that they think their estimations were on the low end also. Okay. Um, it's The wealthiest 1% tend to be around 175 times bigger than you know the average person in terms of their carbon footprint. I mean, that's they're pumping out, I think it said... A carbon footprint of around a, like a, a couple that has that net worth of over a million dollars, um, and this isn't even the wealthiest one percent. This is just that over a million tends to be about 129 tons of CO2 per year, and that's 10 times the global average. Uh, so it's those wealthy people can have a major effect on what they're doing because they're basically accounting for 10 people. And I mean, let me touch on this is we're not saying that rich people are the problem in, no. by any means. No. We are just saying there are rich people who do a lot of great things. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, rich people are part of the problem, just like anyone's part of the problem. Yeah. Right. It's just we're seeing a spike in the way they use CO2 and mm-hmm. leave a global footprint. And because they have so much money, they basically just have a bigger share of the pie in that sense where they can do a lot more good and they can also do a lot more bad. It's kind of this trade-off and it's kind of figuring out how can they do things that combat that because they have such influence. Yeah, and I think it's how 
anyone can do things, and we should all be working to uh, combat climate change. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit more about how these, in quotations, rich people, what, what can they do about it, like, today yeah. or tomorrow? And so one of the big things, you know, obviously spending their money wisely and, you know, using eco-friendly products and just being eco-friendly in general, one, they themselves are using those things, so it's beneficial, but there is that sense of they have a following. They have, you know, people who, I like, idolize them. So if you see, you know, someone who's very prominent in the whole climate change talk is Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, he's one of the biggest proponents for, you know, really being eco-friendly in that sense. He has his own fund for that. And so it's raising awareness so that your followers then kind of piggyback off of you. Uh, another person who was just in the news, I think it was this week, Jeff Bezos actually pledged a new, he started his own his climate billion. change, $10 billion to start it off. And he's kind of historically known as like someone who doesn't donate much money. And so this is kind of really big to see him donating just under, I think it was like about nine, it was about 9% of his net worth. I mean, that's quite a big deal. I mean, you deal. can say yeah. like, you know, okay, he's still got $110 billion 10% net worth. But of your worth I mean, crazy. imagine if, I mean, if you've got $1,000 in your bank account, are you ready today to just like donate 100 bucks to climate change if someone asks you to? You know, probably not. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you were proportionally, it's a large amount of his money. So where does that um, leave the future for us? Like, I mean, yeah, what's the next steps? So I think in terms of the impact that, you know, these wealthy people can really have is just not only, you know, being proponents of how to be eco-friendly and how to really take care of the planet, but be a spokesperson in a sense where they're going to really influence the people who follow them to take action because it doesn't take a lot of people to really make a significant change in terms of climate change. We just need a solid core that then can grow that following. And it's really that influence that plays the biggest role. Right. And I think everyone can do something about it. And it definitely, um, I'm not saying rich people are the problem, but they definitely can do a little bit more than say you or I. Um, And I'll let you spin it out. All right. So that's all we have for today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Coming up, we have a interview, a couple interviews this weekend that we'll be doing. Those will come out Thursday. Yeah, we'll be rolling those out. We'll be in Flanders, South Dakota, um, as well as, where are we going? Uh, Ivanhoe as well. Ivanhoe as well. Uh, interviewing a couple of very interesting people. And then looking a little further down the road, we will be doing that uh, kind of getting a sense of what the U of M campus thinks politically and kind of what their thoughts are so far. Uh, in this political race because it's been heating up. But until next time, thanks for tuning in.